Welcome to the Center for Lit Podcast Network. You're listening to How to Eat an Elephant, a little book club for large books. Have you ever cast your eyes across a shelf full of classics and been driven screaming from the room by 500-page monsters with thick spines and important names? Then this is the show for you. We're here to take on these scary books together, because how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. Hello, friends. Welcome back to How to Eat an Elephant. If what's going through your mind is, what is this guy doing here? (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry. I'm so glad to be back with the posse. How are you ladies doing this morning? Good. Great. We can see the end of this book. I was just going to say that. We can see the end. Not that I'm excited for it to end, because what a glorious experience it has been. But also, all things must come to an end, even good things. (laughs) Yeah. And it's about damn time, you know? I, I agree, yes. So I, I've had a slightly different experience over the last couple of weeks than the two of you have when it comes to War and Peace. You guys already discussed the final five chapters of the last part, right? It's true. And I missed it. I'm so sad. I missed the absolute payoff. Of, I mean, not to rub it in, but thousands of pages. <laughs> <laughs> Literal thousands, actual thousands of pages, mm-hmm. and I missed the payoff. It's my own fault. Well, do you do you have things that you'd like to contribute, having read it? No, I don't have much to contribute other than, wow, that mm-hmm. was really great. <laughs> I enjoyed every minute of that. There were a couple of lines um, that I thought were ex- as exquisite as anything we've read so far, but I'm sure you guys hit on them in the episodes that I that I missed. Emily and I were just talking before we got on the air about the fact that we would actually be comfortable, I think, with the story ending with Natasha saying... It had to be so. It had to be. It had to be so. It had to be so, right? That it, It's perfect. It's kind of perfect. The fact that it's coming from Natasha's lips instead of Pierre's lips, and I just think that's absolutely gorgeous. Also, I feel ashamed of myself a little bit for my feelings towards Princess Maria I in the past. I knew you would. Oh, I'm so glad now, to hear you say that. Who has now become <laughs> just a delight and a treasure to my heart. Yeah, this is the kind of section that will take a doubter, take a tired traveler, and turn them into a Tolstoy fan. You know what I mean? I think so, too. It was actually, I really enjoyed talking about it with Emily, but it did feel a little bit like, what do what is there to say about it? Because he said everything he meant so mm-hmm. beautifully and so clearly, this needs no elucidation by a team, you know? He did such a great job of making this clear to us. Yeah, I agree with that. Absolutely. Um, there was one moment where where... He flirted with a little, well, as I was reading along, I said, Leo, come now. I'm just going to read it because I think it's funny. Okay. So Pierre is telling of all of his adventures. And Tolstoy says this. Now, as he told it all to Natasha, he experienced that rare pleasure, which is granted by women when they listen to a man. Not intelligent women who, when they listen, try either to memorize what they're told in order to enrich their minds and on occasion retell the same thing. Or else to adjust what's being told to themselves and quickly say something intelligent of their own, worked out in their own small intellectual domain. (laughs) But the pleasure granted by real women, endowed with the ability to select and absorb all the best of what a man has to show. 
In other words, a yeah. real woman, an empty-headed ninny muggins. Well, I don't think he means that. Shut up and I listen. I don't either. I don't think he means that, but that is what he said a little yes, bit. Yes, a little bit. I take it back. Not everything he said was precise. Right. That was a little imprecise, perhaps. Contrasting intelligent women with real women. That well, You can't have meant that, Leo. You can tell that he's using the word intelligent sarcastically, sarcastically yeah. but still. Intelligent still like kind Helene of insulting. thinks she's intelligent. Yeah. Right. He is kind of saying real women don't say anything. <laughs> they well, the, just the, absorb the, the glory of the thing that makes them <laughs> Exactly. The thing that makes them a real woman is that they're really, really good at listening to a man. I mean, come on, dude. Come on, dude. Anyways, other than that little part right there, I found it comprehensively beautiful. The, the way that Natasha wakes up in her soul mm-hmm. and all of the the mischievous energy that she's that we knew her uh i was gonna say that we've known in her but we haven't known it in her for like 900 pages so it's fun to see it come back i have a thought it's a little bit late but i think a little slowly um the thing that offsets his comment about women that could be that could really get our hackles up as a modern in our modern sensibilities it he offsets it by having pierre consider himself now in service to natasha so the two of them are serving one another, and it really balances beautifully. There's a line that says, uh, one can serve such masters. And I think he's really intentionally emphasizing that once Pierre has decided he loves Natasha, he's hers forever. And He's no longer free. He's no longer free. Yeah. Yeah. That's a powerful thematic comment that comes back several times in that right. section. And I think the fact that it's those two things together, it's, I don't know, it goes down easier. That abrasive line goes down easier. Yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. And I also think there's a there's a noted contrast between obviously between Pierre's former marriage mm-hmm. and this new relationship. And he's talking about it in terms of freedom and he's making comments about what what real romantic love is and what it's good for. Right. And the one that sticks out to me is you have to be free going in. Right? It's a, you, you can't go in bound. But it's willingly about willingly relinquish bound. your freedom, though. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's about losing a freedom that you have and realize and know about because this other kind of binding is more attractive than being free. I think that's super beautiful and super true. And also, there are just so many pithy little lines, like Natasha saying, "I'll be waiting very much for you." It's such a stilted little way of saying that, but so beautiful. I don't know. I loved everything about it. Emily, you. I'm sure you read it, Emily to the gathered dignitaries last time, but you have one of the quotations from this, from this section Mm -hmm. on our bedroom wall. Yeah, we did read it. I think your version is better. (laughs) (laughs) It's true. Wait, you have a different version? Yeah. So I'm going to find it. I should have found it before I opened my mouth to say this, but, um, but there's a line in here. It's on 1118. Read it, Megan. Oh, okay. So he says, uh, let's see. They say misfortunes, sufferings, said Pierre. Well, if someone said to me right now, this minute, do you want to remain the way you were before captivity or live through it all over again? For God's sake, captivity again and horse meat. Once we're thrown off our habitual paths, we think all is lost. But it's only here that the new and the good begins. As long as there's life, there's happiness. There's much, much still to come. I'm saying that to you, he said, turning to Natasha. I bet you are, baby. Woo! Good stuff. <laughs> but the line, the line, there's much, much still to come, kind of mm. falls a little flat. And in Emily's triangulation of several different <laughs> translations, what did you come up with instead, Emily? There's, there's, uh, there's much before us. There's much yet before us, mm. I think is 
the translation? Well, I chose that one because, let's see, <laughs> in Paul Dano's version, it's there's still more to come. Mm. And I found a translation that said there's still more before us. It's not in that one. I thought it was in that one. But um, I liked the fact that there's happiness before us because it implies that there's happiness out in the future but it also right. kind of suggests that it's like it's before us it's right in front of our face yeah like you it's to be apprehended but it's always present yeah what pierre recognizes is happiness isn't something out there it's always here in front of us it's just that he was blind to it yeah and then his the the, the scales fall off of his eyes and he sees that happiness is right before him oh it's so good that is great stuff. Anyway, so today, actually, though, we're gathered to talk about the None entirety. Of these things, right. <laughs> and well, yet all of these all things. Of these things. <laughs> yes. It's a recap. This is a recap yeah. of our final volume. And Megan and I were just talking about the fact that we actually come a really long way in volume four. Yeah, and there's did a you guys lot get the happens. atmosphere, like the idea that maybe Tolstoy outwrote himself a little bit and then was like, Okay, <laughs> time to wrap this up. Boy, we got to make some tracks. And it just sort of lashed through the last section of the story. Well, either that or I also got the feeling that his head comes up out of all the historical philosophy. And he's like, whoa, forgot what I was doing in terms of plot. We got to make some tracks. <laughs> right. That's exactly what I mean. This, <laughs> that, that this right volume there. begins with Napoleon entering Moscow and Helena's still alive. So that just gives you a little snapshot of how far we come. And this is this will be the last negative comment I make about Tolstoy today I because doubt I'm it. so in love with him. I'm so in love with him after this last section that I can't say very much negative. But I will say I would maybe trade some of those historical monologues for dwelling a little bit more on scenes like this one, yes. my dude. I completely agree. Okay. All right, moving on. Okay. So, how do we do this because we don't as you as you're pointing out there's so much plot. We can't afford to dwell on every single one of the, I don't know, 50 bullet points that mm -hmm. we pulled out of this section. What are what are the themes? What are the themes of the section? And it's very plot heavy, but where do you see them dipping in and touching, touching the story? Well, maybe it's because of Megan's comment, but the first thing that comes to my mind is there seems to be a lot of death and resurrection in this section and oh, i think I, yeah. I feel like maybe all if we went and listened to our recaps back to back they would all sound the same but <laughs> right. mm -hmm. in this scene in particular or in this section in volume four we get the death of helene and we get the death of andre and we get the metaphorical death of pierre and natasha so death and suffering and what comes of it seems to be a major thematic line through this section. And Petya. And Petya, yeah. And, and Count Karatev. Rostov. No, Count Rostov hasn't died yet. No. But okay. he's on his Kara way. Kara Karatev? His, <laughs> I know. His friend in the, um, his fellow prisoner With that gets walked dog. off to the side. Yeah, that gets walked off to the side of the road and shot. Mm -hmm. That was important for him. I mean, I think the, the death of Helene... I can't believe I'm saying this. Almost doesn't matter. I mean, it's it it only serves to free Pierre. Well, that's yes. literally it. Emphasized by Pierre's response when he finally does hear about it years later or months later. Oh, ah, how nice! How nice. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's not the important death. Well, I, don't I think. mean, it's kind of cold, but that's still a kind of resurrection for him, right? It's a it's a freeing. Yeah. But I think the one the the death that causes his metaphorical death is that of his fellow prisoner. Right? 
Yeah, I think you're right. I think that's the one because because it also involves sinning against him by not going over and joining him. Right? Remember there's the there's that moment where he where there's eye contact and there's a plea for for community from the man that's going to be shot here in a second and Pierre ignores it. So I think that's that's where he encounters his own like soul death and whereas Natasha's encountering it because of Andre. Mhm. So there's a little parallel going on between those two. I think is really cool. Yeah, and that brings out another theme, which is the concept of love, which is complicated in this section because we get, so? we get the love of Andre. We've talked about this just about a million times, but it's always something that I'm kind of chewing on. We get the death of Andre and his um, uh, love is God, and, and it, it sounds very much like Karatev's kind of distanced mm-hmm. um, love. There's a quotation basically to the effect that he he didn't he his love wasn't specific. It wasn't particular. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you love people, it, it just like you aren't attached to this life. I think that might actually be Andre. Like he right. learns that to love is to not um, be attached to this life, which kind of frees him up to die. And so we get that. And then we get what you're talking about, Ian, which is um, the kind of moral crux where Pierre looks at Karatev and chooses not to be with him. And he kind of chastises the dog for howling at the death and mourning a particular death. And then we get the particularization of his love for Natasha. And so Andre and Pierre kind of represent two extremes on a pole of what of like Tolstoy trying to define what love is. I think you're absolutely right. But also I think he complicates it one step further by tracing Nikolai's love story. Um, whereas Andre and Pierre are both very philosophical in the way that they think about love. And they're trying to find out where love fits in the list of qualities that make life worth living. Nikolai is a lot more, um, I don't want to say practical because I don't think he's a practical character, but it's more down to earth. You know, it's more like utilitarian, I guess. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But even so, his decisions about love in this volume, we're watching him grow towards the philosophy that Pierre has found, where love is a relinquishing of your own independence for the good of the other. As he meets Maria, she calls everything good out of him. And he becomes a better man than we've seen all along. Um, so he's kind of like an an example of the philosophy put to the test, it felt like. Interesting. I like that. I haven't thought about him in months. Which, and Sonia kind of ends up being the infernal, like the twisted version of that. Because she, quote unquote, sacrifices herself for Nikolai. But actually she manipulates and uses him. Yes. I was going to say, what do we know about Sonia so far? Like, is she... I don't remember where we left her, I guess is what I'll say. Well, in this scene, we get the section where she finds out that Nikolai is kind of gravitating toward Maria, and she sends him this long manipulative letter in which she tells him that uh, he can... He's free. She gives him up. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And we're told that her purpose in sending that letter was basically to guilt him into feeling bad. But it has the opposite effect. Well, right. He's like, sweet, thanks. (laughs) Do we feel bad for Sonia a little bit? I think that you're heartless if you don't. But I think that Tolstoy has painted her in such a way that 
we can't help it. <laughs> we, we do and we don't all at the same time. She's manipulative. But also she's very poor and very dependent and she's in a tricky situation and I do feel bad for her. Yeah, it's almost like her, like she's actually, she is a test case for the truth of the kind of more universal love. Like I would say that her love, it's a self-love for starters, but it's like so particular that she can't even entertain the possibility that it could like of anyone else's love. It has to be Nikolai. She hangs her hopes on him so thoroughly that she's she's looking to him to give her something that he just he can't give. And even if they were to get married, I don't think that he could have given to her what she was looking for. Well, as as much as I sort of hate to do it, we should probably wrap up the historical meditation portion of of the volume. Because you think it's wrapped up. There's still an epilogue. <laughs> I don't want to hear that. Don't tell me that. <laughs> no, I, I think we I think we should wrap it up because it's, he does some of his clearest work here, I guess we'll say, right? When he's meditating on Kutuzov and how, how Kutuzov is actually maybe the great man that he's been arguing against this whole time. What do you guys make of that? Yeah, it takes him a really long time to get around to it, but... In this section, we have him, like you said, as clearly as possible. He he says Napoleon is not a great man because history is, um, it only ever looks to the great men. And you're never going to find meaning um, if you are looking for meaning in history. Right. And so we turn to great men. And he also says very clearly that the reason Napoleon is not a great man is that our... Um, the definition of his greatness has nothing to do with good and evil and the standard of good and evil comes to us from Christ. And so if that is the measure of, if that's the true measure, then Napoleon falls short. And then that is also the measure that allows us to seek Tuzov as the humble sacrificial servant of his country. Megan, how would you summarize the thematic heft of all well, of that? Well, it's so, it's so complicated. I think that's, that's a really good <laughs> summary but there's also this emphasis in deciding whether Kutuzov is a great man or not. There's this emphasis on his view of events being multiplicitous, the way that we've been talking about all along. He, he acknowledges the multiplicity of causes with that humility that Emily's talking about. And when things do go the way that he has hoped, what he says is Russia is saved in the passive, you know, not I have saved Russia. Mm -hmm as mm -mm. a great man would say of himself, as Napoleon That's says all the time. But with this passive gratefulness, Russia is saved. And then from there, all of his actions are preventative rather than, um, yeah. I don't know, rather than asserting himself. Offensive, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. so I like that. That's another element, I think, of Tolstoy's definition of a great man. He's a moral man, yes, but also he's a humble one who acknowledges a force greater than himself. Uh, he lets be, he like lets stuff happen. Yeah. Instead of trying to assert himself onto the world stage. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He's not, um, he's not trying to be the one who knew from the beginning how things would go. And he wants people to remember that he was the one who knew. There's this interesting line that Emily in preparing us for today reminded us of. It's from part one of volume four. So way back at the beginning of our section for today. But it goes, in historical events, what is most obvious is the prohibition against eating the fruit of the tree of knowledge. 
And that seems to be Kutuzov in a nutshell. He does not presume to know beforehand. He just mm-hmm. goes with what becomes obvious. He goes with the flow. He affirms what is happening in the moment. And I think Tolstoy is arguing that that's what we all should do. Yep, that is the positive side of the it had to be. My peers, it had to be, which is eventually echoed by Natasha. Maybe what he's saying is that is the way to live contentedly. Kutuzov does seem to be a contented figure in a sea of strivers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which makes which helps, I think, with the fact that he is a a complex character who we're told when he lies on his bed at night, he does the same thing that all the other generals do. He makes his plans and he he tries to peer into the future and figure out what's going to happen. It's just that instead of one or two possibilities, he sees thousands. Right. And he's also like, we know some weird things about him. Like he enjoys romance novels and right. he's kind of a flirt. A little bit of a dirty old man, perhaps. (laughs) But because he sees himself as a small creature, he actually has an accurate picture of himself. Yeah, that's what I was going to add to this, is that I think think contented might be, not not to jump on the one word choice, but I think contented might be the wrong word. I think maybe instead it's that he himself is not at issue, as he considers any of these things. So he's um, unselfconscious, maybe. Because all of the generals around him in doing exactly what it is that he's doing intellectually are simultaneously trying to assert themselves and are trying to say, it's about me in some sense. And as it goes with me, so it goes with Russia. And Kutuzov is um, unwilling to do that, despite the fact that, as Tolstoy points out to us over and over again, it's true. (laughs) As it goes with Kutuzov, so it goes with Russia. And the the reason he can be that man in that position is because it doesn't concern him. The, the issues of himself and his own heart do not concern him. What concerns him instead is the will of God. And, and we see that finally um, when all is sort of taken care of and he falls to his knees and thanks God for it, right? Um, I think that's beautiful stuff, despite the, despite the personality quirks and despite whether Tolstoy thinks an individual should have that big an impact on the course of things. The one who does is unselfconscious, leaves the issues of, him, of himself up to a higher power than than his own will. Yeah, I think this is about a different character, but there's a line. He could have no purpose. I think it's about Pierre. He could have no purpose because he now had faith. Not faith in some rules or words or thoughts, but faith in a living ever-sensed God. So the presence of this higher power eliminates the thought for his own individual purpose. Maybe that's another way of putting the same idea. So given these principles, how do we... <sighs> How do we go back and read Pierre's marriage to Helene? Because that's the first time that he begins to say it had to be so. And we've talked, like, I think there's a different sense that he's saying it had to be so there because he is not free. He considers himself, I don't know. I don't know, but like, I'm not being very articulate, but I guess what I'm trying to come around to is I am wondering if he is blamable in that of course he is but like or do we take this reading of history and look back and say yeah but also it had to be and if pierre hadn't suffered in his marriage to helen he would have never had the beautiful redemption of natasha and which is what he says right give it all to me again and horse meat you know yeah and i wonder if part of that is this marriage to helen and it had to be and 
And in one sense, it didn't have to be Pierre. You could have, you know, taken some charge here. Had a backbone. And on the other hand, it didn't really have to be for Pierre's story to be the glorious story of redemption that it is. Could it be both and? Can it be both of those things at the same time? That seems very be. realistic. That's kind of yeah. how life feels, you know? Yeah, it's got to be both of those things. It reminds me, just Tolstoy weaving all these things together, I can't get it out of my head that his project self-consciously from the beginning has been not art imitating life, but this art breathing with life, like being alive, mm-hmm. demonstrating yeah. the way that life really is in every page. And I think he's yep. winning. Where these characters are concerned, I think he's winning. Yeah, absolutely. I'm astonished by the balance that he manages to strike as an author between how stridently he claims to know exactly how every historian on earth is wrong and how he's the only one doing it right in his, the way he looks at history. That's a very strident perspective. On the other hand, the way he addresses this, I mean, basically the issue you've been discussing is the, is the question of the freedom of the will or the sovereignty of God. Right. And how can both of those things be apparently true to us? Um, and it's paradoxical. Even in, even in the theological realm, it's paradoxical. And, and he paints it perfectly. I mean, he absolutely paints both sides of that issue. And it's moving and vivid and so sensitive. And ha- it's like there's two different authors in the same body. I'm, I'm confused at that. <laughs> Which I, I've said this before, and I'll say it again, I guess. But I think that is actually really beautiful and while Anna Karenina does Anna Karenina does not do that so much I think he's much more in control of his voice there the fact that he's not in control of his voice in War and Peace to some extent it, it um it actually just goes to demonstrate his own theme yeah just yeah. unintentionally works. uh unintentionally so he is demonstrating how torn he is as an author I think mm-hmm. He has, he's really passionate about this idea. And in a sense, he is Andre, like going off to try to prove everyone wrong. But at the same time, you can tell that he is self aware. He is Pierre. He recognizes his own flaw yeah. in some way. Yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. Coming here close to the end of all things, I like him. I will say that. Tolstoy? I like him. Yep. Yeah. I like him. I'm in. I mean, you can see why he had a cult following in his own lifetime, mm-hmm. right? He was like, what a forceful personality. Dude, <laughs> I, I want to meet the guy. I want to eat a potato with this guy. Did you guys, did you think of how many times eating potatoes came up as a thematic image? It's Pierre eats potatoes all the time in captivity and learns to value them because of Karatiev or whatever his name is. Alexander says to the people... Oh, yeah. I want to support you by eating potatoes. It's, I'm going to grow my beard. Yeah, I'm going to grow out my beard and eat you. potatoes with you. Like, there's a sense in which a potato is a symbol for something. What is it a symbol for? Well, it's a, I mean, not to put too fine a point on it, it's a symbol of poverty. Right. And, and Suffering, it's, it's the same. Maybe. Yeah, it's the same in Ireland, for example, as it is in Russia. Hmm. And there's also something kind of beautiful about the fact that it's a root. It comes out of the earth. Yeah. Uh, which is both earthy and, and but also um it's a, a what a sign of provision yeah mm-hmm. exactly. right it, it yeah. comes out of the earth for us oh, i like that also a sign that people can eat anything man <laughs> mm-hmm. can you imagine i love the conversation this is way off topic but i love the conversation where you imagine the first person to try to eat something 
Yeah. Right? Like, who was the guy that dug up a potato and was like, mm, this would be great with some butter and salt. This oh, would be so good. I'm going to go one further down the rabbit hole and say, I don't know if you know this, but so Paul Dano plays Pierre in the BBC series that we've talked about. If you don't know that yet, then you guys have not been (laughs) listening because Emily has a huge (laughs) tiny crush on Paul Dano. (laughs) But there's this like, there's this trope where everyone's like, Paul Dano always gets beat up in the movies that he's in like beat to a pulp like think there will be blood but at the same time you can put the same clip together of him eating the potato oh yeah and then you and then like the berries in swiss army man he's always eating he's always eating he's not eating quite as often as brad pitt brad pitt is always (laughs) eating Brad Pitt. Yeah. Why are we talking about Brad Why Pitt? This I is a know. War and Peace podcast. I don't know, but I what like happened it. to us? <laughs> so we have we have um, we have an epilogue ahead of us. What on earth do you think that's going to be about? I mean, I'm so I feel so replete. I feel so satisfied. Do you mean what could he possibly have to say now? <laughs> yes. What could he have to say? I mean, do I want to see more of of Pierre and Natasha in love? Well, of course I do. I, I'm down. That sounds great. I would like to see. I hope that the epilogue contains a a similarly uh, satisfying scene with Nikolai and Maria because she deserves it. Ah, yes. She That's, has really gotten the shaft fair. for thousands of pages. So <laughs> Maria, a little happiness could be really nice. I also think Nikolai has a little bit more growing up to do that would be fun for us to watch. Yeah, because I don't have a lot of conscious memories of him. For me, it goes in my head. It goes the there's the battle. I can't remember if the battle happens before or after the hunting. Uh, battle, the then hunting. He goes battle, back to the battle, hunting. but we don't see a lot of him after that. Yep. Battle, then hunting, and then, boom, he's saving Maria. And we're like, mm, there's not a whole lot going on well, between that. Well, he's saving Maria, and then there's some distance between, and he's interacting with rich ladies. He's flirting around a community of rich ladies, mm-hmm. and one of them gives him advice about Maria him. being a better choice. Yeah, That's right. Convinces him not to think about Sonia anymore. And he agrees, and then he leaves her alone, which I think is a sign of maturity. Huh. It's uh, interesting how all of the characters are in, like, they have to go through a period of captivity in order to grow. And for Pierre, obviously, he's truly in captivity. But um, yeah, Nikolai, physical captivity. Nikolai imprisons himself in the army because he feels safe there. And Natasha kind of imprisons herself after Andre's death and doesn't talk to anyone. Maria is imprisoned with her father for a long period of time. That's fun. I hadn't thought about that. That's going to continue. I don't want to spoil anything, but the Rostovs, if we remember the Rostovs' financial situation, which is dire. Dire. Months ago, it was dire. And we haven't checked in with old Papa Rostov in a while, but I can't imagine he's doing very well. And in this kind of society that they're living in that's not tenable you have to be wealthy or you're out so i wonder if their their um financial straits are going to be an imprisonment of sorts well they're about to be just fine maria's filthy rich and nikolai's going to marry her and and pierre is filthy rich and natasha's going to marry him they're all going to be just fine here's the thing about novels they can go on and on and on on and on about how the most important things in human life don't have anything to do with money, but everybody still ends up rich. Though. Everybody, everybody, got it. everybody ends up rich. I know it. Money for you. Money for you. <laughs> it's play money. It's like Monopoly. It's like Tolstoy Monopoly. 
If you're an author why, and you have the power to grant someone love and eternal riches, <laughs> ah, you might as well. <laughs> well, friends, I, any other any other moments you cannot let pass without mentioning again? Any other recollections of this wonderful volume? Um, I just think that the description of Pierre being fresh from the bathhouse, yeah. morally fresh and clean from the bathhouse, is a beautiful adorable. one. Adorable? Yeah, I think it's adorable. It's adorable mm-hmm. is what it is. And the fact that it comes with a, he describes it as a mischievous grin. Yeah. <laughs> right? Oh, yeah. it's so great. So cute. She thinks he's sexy. <laughs> she wants to marry him. I'm so uh, into it. Was that I a miscongeniality reference on how to eat an elephant? I loved that. Yes, <laughs> that's exactly so what that was. <laughs> oh my goodness, Emily, what about you? I, I, like we we said, I would be perfectly happy with a novel ending here, and so I think structurally speaking, it will be interesting to see what Tolstoy does with the epilogue. Um, if he takes back anything that's a danger that's a real Um, danger yeah that will be that will be fun to watch well for my part i am i am here for it if we get to watch pierre and natasha set up a life together i'm in if however he goes to dire prognostications about russia's immediate future (laughs) and or pierre's fate as a decemberist i'm out hard like hard out (laughs) I gotta so, go look up what a Decemberist is. Is that y'all, wrong? Y'all may have to finish this show by yourselves. The jury's <laughs> out. Well, friends, thank you as always for your brilliant insights. And thank you listeners for joining us on this trek through Russia and its history, the through the wilds of Leo Tolstoy's mind. We are so glad that you're here. We can assure you that our next title, which we are still in the process of selecting via a very, very complex algorithm that is, I assure you, completely fair. Um, <laughs> We're going to be reading that book at a little bit of a faster clip so that um, your appetites will not tire over the course of 18 months or some such nonsense. But we're really looking forward to keeping the show going with some steam. So tell all of your friends and please do join us on Facebook to, uh, to talk about all the, all the things with us. Epilogue next. Let's roll, friends. Bon appetit. Bon appetit. Want to follow along with our reading? You can find a link to the schedule in the show notes for this episode. How to Eat an Elephant is a part of the Center for Lit podcast network. Visit our website at www.centerforlit.com to find our other literary shows, resources, and our membership program, The Pelican Society, where you can get access to a variety of live discussion groups. You can also find us on most social media channels. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, happy reading.